Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome back to the Chase Thomas podcast, where I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas up there in New York City. John Taylor of Bangraphs.com is here. John, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Not too bad. I'm doing better than the uh, the New York Metropolitan's owner was doing online this this fine fine morning. I mean, he just shouldn't be online at this point. <laughs> I still don't understand how no one in that organization has told him, "Please stop tweeting. It's a bad idea for you to tweet." Well, I mean, you're not, not telling the owner anymore. not to do something. That's that's a lot of you have to have a lot of gravitas to uh, to be. Get, reaching out to Steve Cohen himself and like, hey, need you to settle down on the Twitter.com. Yeah, and I guess that's that's kind of the thing is like, who in that organization really has the weight to be able to tell Steve Cohen knock it off? Mm. Someone should be telling him to knock it off, but yeah, I guess that's the question. Who, who among them really has that power? And you know what's weird too, and correct me if I'm wrong, from based on what I've gathered and read about this situation, and he went into more detail, I think, this afternoon about it, but it had to do with Stephen Matz, who we found out uh, signed with the Cardinals, multi-year deal. And the, the problem was that his agent like reached out to the Mets and said, we want a reunion, Stephen wants to make this right, and all of this stuff, and that this is not how any of this process ever works. Um, it's also kind of weird that like Cohen operated from a level of expertise here when he is a new owner in major league baseball that was kind of weird uh, on the surface but also just publicly going out against this doesn't seem like something that's going to help the mets in free agency going forward that this is something that's not going to be a positive among a lot of players to see the owner uh hop on twitter.com and uh go after an agent like this but um from my estimation like i don't know if he's necessarily wrong here it's just something you don't broadcast because there's no net benefit to doing this, right? Like, that's that's where I'm at. Yeah, that that's kind of my thing is that there is – I think you're right on both counts. One is that Cohen doesn't really know what he's talking about here. If he's really getting mad that an agent sold him a player in particularly rosy terms that didn't end up being reality, well, that's kind of their job. That mm-hmm. agent, whoever Steve Matz's agent is, I, I don't know his name off the top of my head, presumably went around to every team that was interested in Stephen Matz and said – yeah, we'd really like it to happen with Steven here. What's the best offer you can make or, or something along those lines? That the Mets are seemingly upset that they didn't get a chance at first refusal is also kind of weird because last I checked, the Mets were not Steven Matz's team in 2021. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no first right of refusal for any team because this isn't you know, the NFL or the NBA where they have restricted free agency. This is Matt, Stephen Matz didn't know the Mets anything. I mean, maybe you, you could argue if, there's, if there was, a, I guess, a, a breach of protocol here or whatever you want to call it, Depend- also depending on who is telling the closest version of the truth, because obviously Steve Cohen has a vested interest in spinning this as the mean old agent wouldn't let us sign the guy we wanted, as opposed to I didn't want to pay as much for Stephen Matz, because at the end of the end, that's what this really is all about. You know, if there is a breach of protocol, maybe it's we didn't, we weren't given a, a, the complimentary phone call to be like, Stephen is deciding on St. Louis, but, you know, whatever. But the Mets aren't owed that. Steve Cohen is not owed that, especially if, the, if St. Louis had the top offer on the table and presumably had told Matt, hey, you know, we'd like to get this figured out soon. We really want you here. But, you know, this this offer has an expiration date. Like, at, like, do what you need to do. But, you know, we would like you here. And with that in mind, and on top of that, the fact that it was a four-year deal for $44 million, which it doesn't seem like the Mets were going to match. I mean, I know Cohen said, and, and 
the beat writer just seems to be that the Mets were willing to match that, but the Mets are always willing to do stuff after the fact that <laughs> they don't actually have to put anything on the table. I, I really doubt they were going to match 444 for Steven Matz. That doesn't really seem like... I mean, also, if they were going to do that, why wouldn't they just keep Noah Syndergaard and add a different... Like, I, regardless, whatever. Point of it being, I... The, the that Matt's already had an offer on the table that he liked from a good organization that is close to his home in Nashville, or closer than New York at least is anyway. Why why exactly would he take that back to the Mets and go, can you beat this if he's presumably already decided, no, this works for me? I don't know how much Matt's actually wanted to go back to the Mets. I kind of doubt any Matt former Matt wants to go back to the Mets. At least that was the line we always seemed to hear when they lost free agents in years previous uh, under the Wilpons that those players never actually wanted to be there or were simply tired of being there because the Mets are a poorly run, poorly managed organization. And that remains the case. And I know we've, we've talked about this now several times already in, in the last few months, but this really does just seem like more evidence of a poorly run, poorly managed organization where no one is really in charge. I mean, this is how you end up with this situation with Mats where regardless of whether the agent should have called back or if Cohen should have called or whoever, you know, whoever was the point person on this, and, and that's the other thing. Who is the point person on this? Is it Steve Cohen? Is it Sandy Alderson? Is it Billy Epler? Is it all three? Is it only some of them? Why, If it is only some of them, why is it only some of them? If it is Cohen, why is it Cohen? Why is he in charge of baseball decision-making? Why is he talking to agents? Shouldn't that be the work of the front office that then goes to ownership and says, here's the situation? But beyond that, like this is how you end up with this, with this Matt's brouhaha that really is like you said, I think the most that comes out of this is just other agents looking at Steve Cohen and going, what is wrong with this guy? Why is he freaking out over something we all do all the time, and why is he trying to smear one of our own in the process? To say nothing of what the players probably think of a guy going public by saying, you know, well, we were we were bamboozled or whatever mm-hmm. it is. But like, so now you have that on top of they let Syndergaard walk by with with only the qualifying offer in hand and seemingly no conversation from that point forward despite the fact that Syndergaard, by all, by all accounts, wanted to stay in New York. And then the Aaron Loop, or Aaron Loop leaving for the Angels is, that one doesn't seem to have the stink of they accidentally drove someone away, but at the same time, Loop was one of their better relievers, and a guy that, you know, definitely more so than Matt, that if he had come back to them or if they wanted to keep him, you know, it would have, one, cost significantly less, and two, you would have thought that they probably would have had an easy time of doing it because Loop had such a good year for them last year. Instead, he goes to Los Angeles, and you know maybe the Mets aren't interested in a multi-year deal for a 33-year-old or 32 or 33-year-old reliever, however old Loop is when he throws 90 some miles an hour. But he was very good for them last year. There's no real reason to think that that's going to stop. And you know this guy's already operating at pretty low velocity and succeeding. You know it's not as if he's on the edge of a cliff there or something, or at least not much, not more of a cliff than any other 30-something player faces at this point. None of that, all of that, just seems to point to an organization where just nothing is really. Oh, and on top of this, the Mets still don't have a manager. You know, they, they still don't have a manager. I don't know how much of the front office is filled out below Epler, like how many actual active functioning lieutenants he has. How many children example. does Sandy Alderson have? Yeah, and of course then there's Sandy Alderson's son just standing right you know, right off to the side being like, eventually this will be mine, I Because <laughs> that's the vibe this is definitely giving. So, I don't know. I don't think Cohen has any particular leg to stand on. I don't think the Mets have any real... They just look stupid in this, as they always do. They just look like they got fooled by the oldest sales trick in the book. Which, if you're a billionaire, really is not the kind of thing you should be broadcasting is, 
my business sense is so bad that I took an agent completely at face value and lost out on an asset because I didn't know how to negotiate. Because that's also what this sounds like, that Steve Cohen does not know how to negotiate. Again, how how is this dude a billionaire? How did he make his money? But very clearly, uh, this is not a situation that is working out for the Mets right now. This is a pretty extended, even for them, run of pretty bleak incompetence. And I'm not really sure what the solution is at this point. I imagine over time this will theoretically get easier because they will have, again, theoretically, Epler and whoever constitutes this front office able to be more in charge and make more of these moves the more entrenched they get. But at the same time, it is almost like Thanksgiving is tomorrow or mm-hmm. today, depending on when you're listening to this. The lockout, the CBA expiration date is December 1, and there is a 0.0% chance of, of there not being a lockout. So all major league business will have to stop in approximately a week. You know, they've already missed out on so much crucial time by taking so long to fill the general manager position that in the process they lost out on retaining a starter, retaining one of their better relievers, and adding one of the one of the good mid-tier starters out there who probably would have made a, a sizable, maybe not a sizable difference, that's probably too nice to Steven Matz, who's a good pitcher, but you know, no one's idea of an ace but certainly a valuable mid-rotation piece that a team like the Mets can always use. Even though I, I do think he's a better fit in St. Louis for a variety of reasons, primarily that the infield in, in St. Louis is way, way better than the infield in, in New York, uh, Francisco Lindor notwithstanding. So in the end, it just the Mets just look stupid once again. And But even more than that, it just it just feels more and more like there is just not any organization here, or at least not any competent organization because these are the kinds of mistakes and things that, that shouldn't happen to competently run major league teams. You should not Hi, ben. be getting, you shouldn't be getting like wrong-footed by an agent again pulling the oldest sales trick in the book. That that's really weird that that happens to a team like this or to any team for that matter. I guess it's not weird that it happens to the Mets because this kind of stuff happens to the Mets all the time. I guess it's absolutely very Mets, and it's one where. This is just, I don't know how you get out of any of this. And it just seems like this is something that is going to plague them for a while. It's whether or not they can do enough and spend enough and just um, finagle their way around this of just this being the reality. As Steve Cohen, you never, you just never know what you're going to get here. And every day it's, it's kind of like the, the Will Smith PR person. You're like, you never know what you're walking into (laughs) each day. You, you who just, is Will Smith's PR person? Who are the who are the reporters reaching out to Will Smith and in return getting a story about how he used to make him puke when he had <laughs> sex with people? Can you imagine being the reporter on the other end of that, just being like, uh, thanks, Will. Uh, the question was actually about the kids. The question Will. was, what was your favorite uh, <laughs> your favorite type of sugar cookie? Uh, it's... it's it's got a real vibe of that Donald Sterling uh, oh, yes. was, is this your handwriting? <laughs> Where it's just like, man, you didn't need to know that. Nobody needed to know that. And yeah, you, like you said, you could just imagine his PR person just sitting on the side going, what on, why would you say that? You know, imagine like somewhere in, in, in the Mets front office and probably in Mets media relations or people are just going, why, why, why? why? Like, you know, this dude's going to represent other people and you know that we're going to have to work with other agents forever, right? Like, this is just part that's of the like, deal. This, this isn't helping anything. Like, that's the thing. Like, ultimately, it's such a self, it's such a spiteful 
self-inflicted wound to to, in, to inflict. Oh, I just said inflict twice, but you get what I'm saying. It's strong Logan it's so Roy un- vibes there. Yes, it's so unnecessary. It's just a. It's just a. It's a tantrum. You know what? It's not Logan Roy vibes. It's Kendall Roy. Vibes. Oh no! Oh no! It's master. It's yeah. Master of the universe throwing up, throwing basically a tantrum mm. because the world won't bend to the shape he desires, which truthfully is, I guess, all billionaires. And yeah, Logan. I mean, not to turn this into a succession pod, but Logan does that too. But I'm more than happy to do a succession pod yeah. here. <laughs> the the big deal, of course, being that Logan succeeds mostly when he does these things, and Kendall just looks like a spoiled child. So. Mm. Good, good job by Steve Cohen. You look like the spoiled child of of general manage of of baseball owners right now. Well, in terms of like just baseball fit, do you like the Stephen Matz deal with St. Louis? Was that a surprise to you that he he both went to St. Louis and also got the number of years that he got? I'm surprised that he got the number of years that he got and the guarantee that he got. I'm going to look it up real quick on our uh, Fangraphs top fifty to see what both what we predicted and what the readers predicted. Four years is is definitely more than I thought. I figured he would end up being kind of one of those two or three year guys, just because. Again, the floor is pretty high with Matt, but the ceiling also seems pretty low at this point. I I wrote up this fifty this top fifty free agent blurb, and my general takeaway was you could do a lot worse than Stephen Matz, but unless something really significant changes here in terms of the arsenal or the approach or the velocity, you, what you see is kind of what you get, and th- that's great. And you know, even more so, he did that. He did good work last year in a really tough division in front of a really bad infield, which is, you know, really not set up well for him at all. Um, that, to that end, it doesn't surprise me that he ends up in St. Louis, which always puts a which always puts a, a premium on both defense and contact. Matt's is a guy who would probably will probably look very good in front of that St. Louis infield, um, even even better if they replace Edmundo Sosa or Paul DeYoung with someone like a Trevor Story or or another good defensive shortstop like that. So I do think the landing spot makes sense, especially when you consider, too, that St. Louis, uh, pitching-wise, could definitely use the starting pitching depth. They obviously had a lot of problems with that last year, kind of mixing and matching in the rotation. Uh, they bring back, and you know, they had injury issues with Jack Flaherty, who should be back next year, but obviously you never know exactly how healthy a pitcher is going to be coming off those injuries. You know, Adam Wainwright had a great season, but he is now going to be 40 or 41, or 30 is his way up there. And just interrupt myself, we have predicted three years, 42. Our our fans have, our readers have predicted three at 38. So he pretty much hit the overall value, just managed to get the extra year out of it, which good for Stephen Matz. Um, but I do think he does make sense to add to that Cardinals rotation, because like I said, they were pretty thin last year. Uh, they were only going to get thinner this year by losing Kwang Young Kim to free agency, as well as John Lester and Jay Happ, who were obviously not great in St. Louis, but definitely helped. They were a big help last year in terms of rounding out the rotation. And yeah, this is a team that is going to get Dakota Hudson and Miles Mikolas back, along with Flaherty from injury. But Hudson's coming off Tommy John. Mikolas has not really been healthy in, in over a year at this point. Flaherty obviously was up and down all season. And I, as I just noted, Wainwright is already 40 years old. So I think you definitely need a guy who, if nothing else, can, should be able to provide you consistent innings, even if they're not the best innings. But truthfully, for St. Louis, they don't really need a guy who's going to be going seven strong every, every night. That's not who Matt's is, and that's not what they're looking for anyway. They really are just more in the neighbor. They're more in the in the need of guys who can go five or six innings, turn a lineup over two or three times as needed, you know, get quick ground ball outs, and that is Stephen Matt's to a T. So I think it makes great. I think it makes a lot of sense for St. Louis. I, I like it a lot as a move to give them some kind of guaranteed depth in the rotation. I think they still have more they need to do. Certainly, I, I've, I've been on the get another shortstop train 
uh, for a bit. I definitely think they could use a little bit more, def- a little bit more offensive depth. Although they do have some nice uh, guys, I saw, I saw in the Arizona Fall League too, Juan Yepes and Lars Newtbar, who are very good young players who should be able to make an impact for them, probably off the bench next season. Definitely bullpen depth is the other thing I think uh, St. Louis is going to want to invest in, but. Really, I think the top of their wish list was probably a mid-rotation starter behind Wainwright and Flaherty. And in Mats, they definitely got their guy. Hmm. How's Jack Protein Bar in AA for them? <laughs> Lars. I do like that Lars Newt Bar is creating his own protein bar because when your name is Newt Bar... Is he really? You have to, yes, he is creating his own protein bar. That's amazing. Um, got to lean into the opportunities when the universe presents them. Absolutely. I mean, did you see... Uh, I know you're a big college football guy, so like when you're when you're grinding the when you're grinding the tape, John of Kentucky football, and you're looking at stuff. Like I know you've been really high on Pascal as an edge rusher for the Kentucky Wildcats uh, this fall, and uh, he, you know, the NIL stuff that is now uh, all throughout college sports. Well, he finally like we finally have a good ad. We have a good one, and he just uh, did an ad for a local dentistry in Kentucky, and he's just like yelling at parents and kids about no sugar and running through the office, and it's it's incredible. It's it's incredible. So that's a, that's a good one. Leaning a, a positive development of leaning into stuff like that. Um, that sounds that sounds generally. Fun. Look at Kentucky, by the way, with mm. with the football team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look at, look at them with the football team that we beat. John Taylor, we got Vanderbilt on Saturday. I'm driving back up from Atlanta um, to make that game. People are like, "What? What? Because my mom was like trying to figure out like why I was trying to leave at a certain time on Saturday, and I was like, "Well, it's a big road. It's a rivalry game. Yeah, it's a, and it's the last one of the year, and then we're gone until the end of uh, the. I mean, the early part of September again. Like, it, which man, uh, which which bowl did Tennessee land in the like Brickyard 500 mm, Coca Cola mm-hmm. Armed Forces Bowl or the one they do here at Yankee Stadium with Penn State or Rutgers every year. That's the pinstripe bowl, but no, they uh, <laughs> they have not uh, they have not uh, picked a bowl yet. So we'll see. They've just qualified for a bowl by winning their sixth game last week. So they'll likely finish seven and five. But it looks like our destination options are Nashville for the Music City Bowl. Memphis. I was going to say seven and five is the most Music City Bowl ass <laughs> record. You you, play the, like, you bite your tongue, sir. <laughs> Please tell me their opponent is a MAC team, just to make that easier. No, better. we're not getting a MAC team. We're getting an ACC or Big Ten team, most likely. We're going to get, uh, I mean, it might be the Duke Mayo Bowl in uh, in Charlotte. Uh, we, we, that's a strong I, I possibility. Appreciate a, I appreciate a game at Duke. Well, it's not at or, Duke. It's just called pre- the Duke's Mayo Bowl. I think that's oh, who the like, brand is. Oh, like the brand Duke. Right, oh. yeah. I was gonna say that's a that's a wonderful little jab at Duke, just calling it the Mayo Bowl. But yeah, no, no, not not there. Uh, and Duke's also not going bowling um, this year because their football team stinks. Last in the coastal, I think. Uh, have they always stunk? Why did this turn into a college football podcast? What all my podcasts eventually turn into a college football podcasts at some point, John Taylor. That's true. That's true. Um, which brings us back naturally to the San Francisco Football Giants. No, the the actual baseball Giants. Um, it looks like they're getting the gang back together in the starting rotation with Wood, DeScalfani. Um, are you okay with them trying to run back what worked last year with these rehab pitchers and just betting on their staff and their development to be able to do something similar all over again with this group? Or would you like kind of maybe bring back some and recycle and then go back out and try to find the next Wood or DeScalfani or whoever? Like, Or, I mean, even um gaussman like i i don't know i think this is always tricky for teams when they just get 
too into it. And then they're like, oh, we can, we fixed it. The problem is solved and now we can pay them and we can move forward. I would be more on the, I would just be nervous about that if I was a fan. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this makes sense, though, because if you're going to bring back, I mean, the four guys in that rotation who were, who were free agents were Gaussman, DiSclefani, Wood, and Johnny Cueto. Mm-hmm. Cueto, I think, is a is a wild card at this point because I, I don't know if he's a guy you really need to target at this point in the offseason because I, I can't imagine his market is particularly big. You know, he's he's a fine innings eater type, but he's really more in the uh, last few years of Jeff Samarja's stage of his career, you know, where mm. it's, you know, it, it's league average at best is what you're really expecting. Gaussman, I imagine, has probably priced himself out of San Francisco's plans, uh, given that he is almost certainly going to get a sizable multi-year deal as someone who is, you know, really reinvented himself over the last two years. I think what's more likely is San Francisco wants to find the next Kevin Gaussman. Certainly, I think that's what would uh, kind of make their pursuit or their, their rumored pursuit of Alex Cobb make sense as another guy who, you know, has struggled with a lot of injuries and has really not been consistent, but maybe the Giants can unlock something with him like they did with Gaussman. I kind of like the idea that they just turned themselves into a former Orioles kind of rehabilitation facility, Mm kind of hoping they can coax Brian Matthews out of retirement or something, or go dig up Wade Townsend, who I believe is now a professional (laughs) poker player. Is he? But anyway, uh, I think so. He was was one of those many Rice guys who was drafted who never never really panned out when they were really good for about 15 or so years ago. Rice, there you go. I think of those four guys, it made the most sense to bring back Wood and DiSclefani because they were guys who, one, you could get on pretty low, uh, low guaranteed contracts, which you know they did. DiSclefani is going to be making about thirty-four million dollars or so, I believe, over the next three years. Wood's contract is, you know, it hasn't been made officially yet, but it's looking more like a two-year deal around twenty million dollars. Obviously, pocket change for the great majority of teams. That's you know, good price for mid-rotation starters. And just like with Mats, that's pretty much what these guys are. They're mid-rotation starters with... The only difference is I think Wood has more upside than either of those two. The downside with Wood, obviously, is that you're probably not going to get more than 120 innings out of him at this point. I believe he pitched around 140 last year. DiSclefani, I think, is more in that Mats mold of just the kind of competent mid-rotation starter who just churn, can churn out five solid innings at a time. And I think the value that they found in those guys and the reason they brought them back is because, you know, the the two of them cost a grand total of about 50 million bucks or only about, you know, some five or 6 million more than Matt's did by himself. And certainly $50 million is not going to come close to being able to, to bring Gaussman back. So I, I think if you want to build a rotation efficiently, that's kind of what you have to do at this point. Or at least what the giants have chosen to do at this point is just target the target, the mid tier guys, give them a two or three year deal. You know, you have, a, you have Logan Webb already present. You don't really need to worry about a number one starter type. He's pretty much already there. And then you start taking your gambles on lower tier guys like Cobb or, you know, I guess, uh, I don't know what the what the rest of the bottom tier of, of the pitching market looks like. But that does feel like more of a Giants thing is you do that there and then presumably you spend that money elsewhere. I mean, I uh, if I'm the Giants, where do I spend that money? I don't necessarily know. I mean, you could certainly make an argument that Maybe they could stand to add a little bit of outfield help, some bullpen help, keep adding pitching depth. Because even with Webb, Wooden, DiSclefani back, your next three starters on the depth chart are Sammy Long, Tyler Beatty, and Joe Palumbo, none of whom are particularly... Palumbo, at least, was at one point a top prospect within the system. Long and Beatty have had that shine long come off of them. So... I think there's probably more work to be done for the Giants, but I think of the moves they could have made with both the free agents they had and who was available in the market, 
this is probably the most sensible one. You know, they were. I don't think they were ever going to be realistic players for guys like Scherzer or certainly not Kershaw or, you know, before he re-signed with Houston, uh, a guy like Verlander. I think the DiSclefani's and Woods of the world and then the step below, guys like Cobb, who were more kind of uh, lottery ticket type signings, all like all the way Gaussman was. I think those are more the kind of moves you'll see the Giants continue to make, especially considering that I think they want to save the money that they have, probably to add, if possible, maybe an impact offensive piece. I know we talked about, you know, do you want to stick with Brandon Crawford going forward? I think they will, in part because you know he's a, he was great last year, in part because they already have Marco Luciano in the system, ready and waiting, presumably to take his job once he's once he's moved on. But at the same time, although Luciano did not get above uh, advanced A ball last year, so presumably he's still at least another year away in the system. But either way, I, I think this makes I, do, I think this does make sense for the Giants is is to get get back the chunk of the rotation that they could most easily afford, and that gives them probably the most bang for their relative buck. There you go. There you go. Um, the White Sox added Kendall Graveman. Uh, what do you What do you make of the White Sox? We've had kind of a quiet winter thus far, and I think they're in one of the more interesting uh, spots heading into twenty twenty two. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty that they can and I think should do. I think uh, if you were to look at their depth chart and kind of pick out the problem areas, starting I think pitching, second base, second base, I think, and right field are the ones that really stand out hmm. for me. Right field has just been the permanent hole for this team for so long that I, I don't know that they even care to fix that at this point. I, I wonder if they're just going to say screw it and just have Andrew Vaughn play out there, which would be a catastrophic mistake just mm. really on a defensive level. But second base, too, is something where, I mean, maybe they maybe they are comfortable with Romy Gonzalez there. I would rather, if I were a White Sox fan, that they you know just go give Marcus Semien a lot of money. That just would work very well with the team as currently constructed. He might say no, though. He seems like he's either staying in Toronto for a lot of money and on a good team, or he's going back home to the West Coast. Perhaps, but at the very least, I think second base is something that they should be looking into instead of just saying, eh, Larry Garcia and Romy Gonzalez is fine. I, I, I think they, could, they can and should do better than that. Well, he also Rotation sacrificed wise, second base, right? Because of the magical trade. Like, that was part of the, part of the yeah, deal there. And that's, and that's, of course, related to the, to the Graven signing in that, you know, Madrigal was... was dealt obviously for Craig Kimbrell and the fact that they're putting additional resources into that bullpen especially given that they picked up Craig Kim they picked up Kimbrell's contract option for next season mm-hmm. at a pretty t- at a pretty hefty 16 million annually which is well, I mean if you're going to give away Madrigal you have to pick up that option you do you can't just let him walk for nothing and mm-hmm. I imagine at this point you know I know we, we talked about how there were rumors that the White Sox were going to try to move Kimbrell now that they've added Graven, I think that that's probably a, almost a necessity on their part to try to get some of that money back and use it somewhere else on the roster. Because truthfully, you know, for as cool as it is to have a bullpen with with Liam Hendricks and Craig Kimbrell and Kendall Graveman, you know, that that's already such a source of strength for Chicago that I you could very easily argue that money is better spent somewhere else. And as we saw last year and as we've seen throughout the course of his entire career, Craig Kimball's really not a guy you want pitching in non-save situations. He is not a setup guy. Mm. He's never done well in that role. He's never been a guy who's... He, like a role as Chapman, he just seems to be one of those closers who just needs to be a closer and who doesn't really do well outside of that prescribed role. And that just doesn't really fly in Chicago because, again, they already have Hendricks there. And even if they didn't have Hendricks, Graveman is also a perfectly fine closer candidate. I think what matters more for that bullpen is the flexibility in front of Liam Hendricks, if Tony La Russa does want to be Tony La Russa about, uh, about having his closer. And Kimbrell just doesn't give you that flexibility. I think Graveman does, 
We've seen him handle multiple innings, both in the regular season and over the course of the playoffs, uh, during the regular season with Seattle and then in the postseason with Houston. Uh, he is a right-handed ground ball-inducing machine, which is very useful for a bullpen, where obviously they have a lot of right-handed guys who are, for the most part, high strikeout uh, dudes, but not really guys who can induce or get consistent weak contact. Aaron Bummer is really the, the main guy in that bullpen who does that, and he comes from the left side, obviously. So he definitely does fill a role there, and I think if the White Sox have already decided that Kimbrell is someone they want to move on from, then it does make sense to you know for them to go okay, then let's find a really good setup man for a reasonable price, which I, I think they obviously I think they got with Graveman, and focus on moving Kimbrell so we can then you know tick off the next items on our wish list. And I think you know for the you know while it is easy to say oh you know focus on second base and right field, those are far bigger problems. I mean, Graveman was right there. It was only a three-year, $24 million deal. A lot of pitchers seem very eager to get their money right now. A lot of players seem very eager to get their money right now for entirely understandable reasons. That's a really easy one you can just check off. And though and though we do have a lockout coming in about a week, you know, now the, now the White Sox have all offseason to, you know, make their calls, see if anyone is interested in Kimbrell. Or if worse comes to worse, they could be a team that holds on to him into March and just waits to see if a team uh, loses a closer during spring training or first thing in the season, a la the Blue Jays with Kirby Yates. You know, that that's I feel like every there's always one team every spring that loses its best reliever. And if you're the White Sox, you could do a lot worse than just kind of waiting to see who that happens to be and then going, Well, we have a perfectly good Ken, Greg Kimbrell we don't plan on using. What do you want to give us for it? You know, especially especially if that team is willing to eat a lot of that money, I can imagine a deal could be facilitated very quickly. So I like Graven for the White Sox. It does create a bit of a logistical problem now that they kind of have to trade Craig Kimbrell, and they certainly still have more more work to do. But I I think based on the bullpen they already have, and based on the needs they have elsewhere, I, I think this this makes a lot of sense for them. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, is it time? for our uh or actually one more quick note because i think we do have to touch on this as well uh the tampa bay race made a big long-term commitment yes they did they made a long-term so, commitment that wander franco is such a good player he got the race to spend money <laughs> that's a that's remarkable no one's mm-hmm. ever done that before i mean it's it's a thing um are we like are they doing the half and half next year do we know that for sure they want, they keep saying it like it's going to be a thing. I, I don't know. I, I've given up on trying to figure out what is going to happen with the actual Rays in terms of whether they stay in Tampa slash St. Petersburg or not. It's Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. I don't think the Tampa-Montreal split situ, uh, situation is any kind of viable solution. It just seems like a desperate, desperate attempt to try to get all sides involved to, to work out something better. But who knows is is the the short answer there yeah i don't know either but it's um yeah i'm I'm not a fan um well let's do our new york yankees season review i have a sneaking suspicion john taylor that you're gonna enjoy this this segment on this this very program um what went right and what went wrong a lot of alliteration there um in the 2021 season for the new york yankees it's funny to say about a team that made the postseason and won like 91 or 92 games or whatever it was that it feels like very few things actually went right. Boy, it really feels like not a whole lot went right for the Yankees. Yankees fans did not have fun last year. No, that was a very unpleasant season all the way around, I think, for everyone involved with the franchise. And I get it because for what feels like yet, like what feels like yet again, this team 
underperform in both relative to the expectations everyone had and then certainly relative to the level of talent on this team. And not just underperform, but I think there were, I mean, there were stretches where the Yankees looked like the Yankees we expected, but there were certainly felt like more and longer stretches where they just looked absolutely incompetent in, in every sense. Just lackadaisical, just no energy, clumsy. Uh, it really felt like at several points there that Aaron Boone was managing essentially for his job. And I think the biggest surprise to me of this Yankees offseason is that he is being given another chance, that he is being brought back next year, albeit with a completely different coaching staff, with the exception of, of the pitching coach, which makes me think that for all intents and purposes, I, I cannot imagine any scenario in which the Yankees fail at least to win, at least to make the playoffs. And I think it, it will have to be more than that. I, I, I have to figure if the Yankees don't at least make it to the ALCS and ideally for them win the pennant and obviously go on further, I think that is probably the end of Boone. I mean, this is as lame duck a manager year as you can imagine when the when the front office is basically dictating your coaching staff. That's not really a good sign for your, for your continued employment hope. However... Uh, Cashman mentioned like I know like he's at peace like that whole thing where he's like an open book with this stuff where he's like I mean hey we didn't do enough I mean I could be gone next year I could be gone like every year to me is like a a lame duck year and I think that's just kind of how it works top to bottom is like every year should be considered a lame duck year if you're in New York that's I mean that's the other truth is the standards are always higher the expectations are always higher and though this certainly isn't the franchise being run by a megalomaniacal lunatic like it was in years previous (laughs) Um, they're definitely, I mean, that, that fan base and the media around and the media around the team definitely make the stakes feel higher and definitely make the pressure feel that much bigger. So I, and I think just the popular response this season, the fan response to the way things played out just really makes me feel like there is no way the Yankees can, can justify another Aaron Boone season if 2022 plays out in the same way 2021 does. Did you assume that Tyler Wade was just going to be a Yankee for the next 17 years? No, because I figured eventually they would get tired of the speedy, skinny guy who doesn't really do anything. Incorrect. Brett never... Gardner is there forever. Are we sure Brett Gardner is still not going to reappear I, somewhere? I, th- I mean, I think Brett Gardner is a Yankee until he literally doesn't want to be at this <laughs> point. Um, I, the particular fetish that Cashman has for him, I have yet to understand, really. I understand the idea, at least, that Gardner is a good clubhouse guy. What if his head gets too big where the helmet doesn't work anymore? I'm genuinely amazed his helmet does fit on his head. It's a very <laughs> sizable crane. That's what but, forces his retirement is that uh, they just can't uh, find a helmet big enough. But, to... but, that's, but that's just kind of the thing is like that mm. roster, even like, you know, you could argue like, oh, why was Brett Gardner on that roster for so long? He was terrible. He couldn't do... Who else? Like that, that was the thing. Like this team just doesn't, didn't feel particularly well built. You know, they had too many corner, corner infield, outfield DH types. Really, only one guy who could play center field in Gardner once Aaron Hicks got hurt. And you know, you talk about moves that really have not panned out for New York. The big extensions that Cashman gave Hicks and to Luis Severino have really, really not worked uh, because of injury problems for both of them. Uh, you know, they had a shortstop in Labor Torres who should not have been at shortstop. They had too many first basemen at one point. They had a second baseman in DJ LeMahieu who just could not hit all season. Clearly, it was going to be playing through some kind of injury. They have a catcher, one catcher who, who hits but doesn't catch, the other one who catches but doesn't hit. It, nothing really seems to be, this roster just does not feel very well put together. And I, I really, it really stood out to me in Cashman's post, uh, end of season uh, press conferences, you know, the, the retrospective one that, that he, you know, that the Yankees seem to do every year. I think most teams do, but the Yankees especially. 
that he made a point of saying we have to be this has to be a more athletic roster you know and i think that's both in terms of you know the like i said they have a lot of guys who really only work at one or maybe two max positions and a lot of those seem to be toward the right end of the defensive spectrum but i think a lot of it too is just you have you just have a roster that feels very stuck in a very particular way of production and that's home runs or bust and i know that's been a running joke for the longest time with the yankees they hit too many home runs if that's you know at all a problem that can actually exist but this is a team that genuinely seemed incapable of manufacturing runs unless they put a ball over the fence. There's not a whole lot of speed on this roster. There's not a whole lot of hit and run capability. There's not a whole lot of contact hitting on this roster. There are a lot of all or nothing guys on this roster. Giancarlo Stanton, Joey Gallo, uh, the various, you know, first base infield, Gary Sanchez. Lots of dudes who can hit tape measure shots, but are also, you know, by the time the season's ending, you're looking at their, and I'm, and I'm, you know, batting averages absolutely no longer the be-all and end-all, but, you know, you still have guys who are hitting 240 and, and swinging and missing 15% of the time. Like, that's, it's really hard to, to create runs when you cannot put the ball in play on a consistent basis. Now, does that translate to the Yankees pursuing those kinds of guys this offseason? I don't know. The other problem with this roster is that it's kind of locked in in a lot of different ways. Not a whole lot of money came off the books this offseason, or at least not not a substantial amount of money. And a lot of the players who were on this team last year are coming back next year. Stanton, Gallo, Judge, uh, LeMahieu, Gio Urshela, Luke Voigt is still around, although his future is very murky. Torres still around, although similarly very murky future. Sanchez, great majority of the pitching staff, you know, there's not a and there's not a whole lot they can do with most of those guys. A lot of them don't really have much in the way of great trade value at this point. If you're dealing Garrett Labor Torres, you're selling very low on him. Gary Sanchez doesn't really have much trade value as an okay hitting catcher who really is not just does not play well defensively behind the plate. Luke Voigt is a bat first first baseman who can't stay healthy. Like these aren't guys you can actually expect to get much of anything for if you do decide you want to move on from them. And at the same time, a lot of those guys are already locked in kind of long-term. LeMahieu still has uh, four years to go on the deal he signed last offseason. Stanton still has a million years left to go on his deal. Uh, you know, they at some point are going to have to get serious about a long-term extension for Judge if that's something that they want to do. There's a lot of uh, the, the huge years and money tied to Garrett Cole going forward. Like, there's a lot that this team kind of already has set in place that they can't really move or that it doesn't really benefit them to move. Obviously, the big hole that they have that they, you know, where they can get creative is at shortstop um, because now that they don't have Torres playing there, the current depth chart has Gio Urshela there. I really struggle to believe that that's going to be the case going into the season. I know they've made a lot of noise uh, through the press about how, you know, they don't need Corey Seager, Carlos Correa, Trevor Story, or anyone else because they've got Anthony Volpe and Oswald Peraza in their system. And those guys are going to be superstars, and you just wait. I really, really fail to believe that two prospects, one of whom is an A-ball, are going to be the difference between the Yankees signing or not signing Carlos Gray or Corey Seager, who would be perfect fits for that roster no matter what. But it does really feel like between, like in terms of the Yankees getting better for next year, beyond whatever bounce back and performance they can get from the guys who are coming back, the opportunities to upgrade are going to be at shortstop, where you know there are many, many good options available, and it's going to be in the starting rotation to add some depth there, because right now with the guys that they've lost and the injury issues they've had, you know it, it's Garrett Cole who I you know you always feel good about Garrett Cole even amidst the you know the sticky stuff uh, band that seemed to have a 
short but significant impact on him. And it, it seems like things t- uh, change for the better over the course of the back half of the season. But regardless, you know, you still have Garrett Cole and you feel good about that. But beyond that, it's Jordan Montgomery, who is a very good starter, but someone really should be more toward the middle or back of the rotation. Severino coming off Tommy John surgery. Nestor Cortez, who's a fantastic story and seems like a lovely person, but gets away with throwing 90-mile-an-hour fastballs, and I really, really don't think that's something you can kind of bank on going forward. And then right now the fifth spot is Domingo Herman, who is very up and down and I don't think can be trusted really in any capacity. And then the and then prospects who've spent most of last year struggling, Michael King, Clark Schmidt, Davey Garcia. You know, those guys have all taken dings in their value. And I think that – and I know you have Jamison Ty on the injured list too uh, currently because he had ankle surgery about a month ago. He should be presumably available for, for the start of next season, so he'll slot in there somewhere. But I do think this is probably an area where the Yankees might want to add some depth too. But really, I mean, if you're going to make this team better, if you're really truly going to make this team take a step forward – it feels like it has to be by adding one of Correa or Seager or, you know, or Story or, I mean, if you have a, if a team with contact issues, really, really, really should not add Javi Baez. But he definitely does help with at least the more athletic, better defensive part of things. And because that's the other thing, too. This is a bad defensive team all the way around. And Correa, Correa would solve that at shortstop 100%. Seager is a, thir- is a long-term third baseman, but at the very least... You know, he is a good defender at either of those. Or he's a, not a great shortstop defender, but either way, maybe you put, maybe then you put him at third and you move. Look, I, I don't know. But this, this is kind of the other problem is when you start to kind of figure out, you know, other, other iterations of this infield where you don't add, say, Carlos Correa and just call it a day. Mm-hmm. What do you do with LeMahieu? What do you do with Urshela? Where is Glaber Torres playing? What are you going to do with, with Voight? Like, you know, if the Yankees are serious about a Matt Olson trade, and I think a trade is probably the only other route to make this happen, mm. and it, excuse me, it has to be a trade, I think. Well, can I speak on like- the Matt Olson thing? As someone who knew his brother and graduated with his brother, Matt Olson went to my alma mater back in Georgia. Um, never seen him with facial hair. His dad growing up never saw him with facial hair. So I think that he's, he's is. He's already a perfect fit. That's what I'm saying. So that's something I can tell you is that. Uh, Never seen him with facial hair, so I think that's a, a natural natural move there. And I think that's, but I think even if you do make that deal, and it certainly would make a lot of sense for the Yankees to make that deal, it, I think the trades they have to make have to be with teams like Oakland that are just looking to salary dump, that aren't really looking for anything in return. I mean, the Yankees have a ton of minor leaguers they can throw at any team they feel like and, and, and trade for anything. Mm-hmm. But in terms of actual young major league, established major leaguers, you're taking your pick from Torres. And that's really about it. I mean, depending on how you feel about Chris Gittens or Esteban Florial or it, the the very damaged goods at this point that is Miguel Andujar, I don't mm. know. I mean, you're, you, there's a lot of potential shit that the Yankees can throw at a wall to see how much of it sticks. But I'm really curious as to how they are going to increase this roster's flexibility when there's just not a whole – they don't have a lot of directions they can potentially go. To a certain degree, I almost feel like this team kind of needs to wait. Not wait, necessarily. I mean, wait's probably not the right word, but it, it almost feels like this team... I don't know what the best way to put this is, but they, they've got a lot of long-term stuff that they that is just kind of hampering them to a but certain degree. But I don't think degree. they're ever going to address that, because they're not a normal organization. Like, they don't... No, and, that, and that's, the weird, that's the weird part about it, right? We're talking about the Yankees as if they have to respect any kind of financial boundaries when they have mm. more money than God. And, you know, Cashman has already said that he's been given, at least uh, from, from what we understand, that he's been given the okay from ownership 
to push the payroll a little higher than it was last year when mm-hmm. it rounded out at just above $200 million. I don't see how the Yankees can run a payroll less than that next year. I mean, just with the guaranteed money they have on the books, uh, I think they're already looking at like just close to $200 million between, again, the guaranteed salaries and the arbitration payouts they have to make and everything else. So they're going to have to spend more money, I think. The question just is, where do they choose to spend that money? For me, it, it, it's just for me the, the path. Just the simplest path is is the best path. You sign Carlos Correa, you sign another starter, and you go from there. This is still a really, really good team when yeah. healthy and when everyone is clicking. And we've seen that. The trick just is, like I said, they need a they need a roster that's a little more flexible. And I think that there needs to be more of a sense of urgency among them because it really did feel last year like there were long stretches where nobody on that team seemed to give the tiniest bit of a shit about what was going on around them. They also got lucky. The Blue Jays were better than them last year, I think. They did get lucky. They they did get lucky in that they really should not have made the playoffs, at least compared to... I mean, you could argue that the, the Red Sox also got lucky given that they fell apart in September and, and really only just barely hung on to a playoff spot. But I guess that's the other thing going forward for the Yankees, too, is that this is not a division that they can rule just by default. You know, the the Rays, the Rays are the Rays. They are consistently good, even though they run a payroll, you know, one-sixth of what the Yankees do. Uh, and even though they have committed themselves never to spending money beyond Wander Franco. The Red Sox have arrived at their point of, they are closer to actual contention than I think any of us really expected them to be at this point. Nor do I see this that Red Sox team being one that takes a significant step back next year. There's just really no point to them doing that. That's a team that's going to start at least. I don't think that we're ever going to see them spending the way they did kind of in the uh, earlier John Henry years. But I think that's still a team that's going to be active and going to be a competitor. And like you said, the Blue Jays are right there with them too. This is a really hard division. This is not a division where you can just sit back and expect things to go your way because you have the most all-stars on your roster. You need to build a roster that makes the most sense for baseball nowadays, and that is a roster that is defensively flexible, where it's all not all just you know three true outcome sluggers, and where you have some pitching depth beyond just uh, you know where you, not just where you have pitching depth, where you have a flexibility of pitchers, where you can have more guys like Jonathan Loisaga who can go out there and give you two innings, or like a Chad Green, and who can give you some of those bullpen innings if you do want to roll with guys like Severino and Herman next year. And you just feel more comfortable, and Montgomery, and you just feel more comfortable with those being closer to five or six inning guys than anything else at this point. Yeah, the Clint Brazier thing still is a bummer too, man. Like I don't, I don't think he's playing baseball again. I saw some Braves fans nah, like, let's bring him back home, and I'm like, I don't think you even want it's that. Really, it's really sad. I, I am just going to assume it's a complicated situation because I feel like any, I mean, it's a, it's a head injury thing, so it always kind of is. But, like, that's the other kind of thing is that the young player development for the Yankees has really not been there the way I think we all expected and the way it, the way it seemed like it was playing out when the Baby Bombers thing first came, first happened and you had Sanchez and Judge coming up and just hitting everything in sight. Frazier is obviously a very big miss. That Part of that is injuries. I think part of that is a disconnect between player and coaching staff. But, you know, obviously that's been a whiff so far. Torres, after his first great year in, in New York, has been a – an unmitigated disaster where I, I genuinely don't know what the Yankees do with him at this point. Uh, Sanchez has obviously taken a really big step backwards. Andujar uh, is one of those guys where it just feels like every Yankees fan online was right. They really should have just traded him when they first had the chance. 
Um, now he's just languishing as a bench piece in the minors where his value is basically zero. Uh, Severino is obviously an injury thing. Herman is its own, he's his own significant problem. But yeah, the, the recent player development, it's the successes have more been guys like uh, Lucas Lutke or Albert Abreu or, or guys from other organizations like Clay Holmes and, uh, or, or, or Nestor Cortez where they've been able to turn zeros effectively, zero war players into effectively 1.5 or two war players. The problem that they've run into is that the guys who should have much higher ceilings than that have had a really, really hard time meeting them. Some of that is injury. Some of that is just playing out of position. I think especially in Torres' case, sticking him at shortstop was just a mistake all the way through. But, yeah, that, that young player development has not done what it's needed to do for the Yankees. And like I said, it doesn't help that down in the minors, I mean, yeah, they've had real success stories with Peraza, with Volpe, with Oswaldo Cabrera, with uh, Anthony Siegler. But at the same time, uh, Austin Wells, too, is someone I should mention is probably their eventual catcher of the future if it's not Siegler. But like I said, at the same time, a lot of those pitchers that they had in their system were kind of being counted on as that cheap young depth to be able to make up for, for the issues with guys like uh, Severino and Herman. Thankfully, you have guys like Andrew Haney that step in, though. (laughs) Oh, Andrew Haney. But yeah, a fair number of those guys took pretty significant steps back next last year, particularly Schmidt and Garcia. They pitched very poorly in the majors and didn't really have the impact I think you would have expected out of them. Uh, Michael King and Luis Gill, better, but at the same time, uh, and Gill particularly looked very good late in the season, kind of just in an emergency addition to the rotation. But... Yeah, the, the the minor league system, though, the much vaunted farm system that was supposed to, you know, fuel this return to cont- this return to World Series contention for the Yankees, and that was going to provide them the very cheap base so that they could go out and sign guys like Cole, or or trade for guys like Stanton and be able to afford it. it. It just has not played out yet, and that also has really hurt the flexibility of the roster, where you are just stuck being forced to go get guys like Rugnet Odor or Andrew Haney to fill those spots instead. And those guys are just flat out bad. There's a reason Rugnetto Dor was available for free. There's a reason Andrew Haney cost the Yankees effectively nothing at the trade deadline, you know? And any team that has to rely I mean, every team has to rely on those guys every now and again. No team stays healthy for, you know, an entire season, but it, it does say a lot that instead of being able to call up guys from the minors to take those spots and produce, that the Yankees had to spend resources and time and then create blocks essentially on their roster in the form of guys like Odor and Haney and continue to give them playing time when it became clear that there wasn't really a good option behind them. And that's why you end up giving way too many at-bats to Rignet Odor or way too many starts, which is to say more than one, to Andrew Haney. Mm. So what is your expectation uh, next year? Where do you place them uh, as it stands right now and with uh, the outlook for the rest of the AL East? It's tough. I mean, on the one hand, they are probably one of the least impacted teams in terms of free agent losses, depending on how you feel about uh, the future of Anthony Rizzo and Corey Kluber. Both of those guys I don't think are losses that are going to be too big, although Kluber definitely had a really big impact. Honestly, more on the on the coaching side of things, I, I, I think, than on the on the actual on-the-field side of things. You know, he was a, From what I heard, he was a very big influence on the pitchers on that staff, and, and certainly a guy who who seems to have a future, at least in, in, in the world of, I think, pitching coach, pitching coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, you know, like we said, this, this roster returns mostly intact last next year. And this is still a team that for all its ups and downs and struggles and bad stuff, won like 92 games and made the playoffs. And, you know, yeah, that's why the doom, good. like 
a lot of the mistakes that the Yankees, and this is like if you're a fan of another team, you're just like, if we made like a third of the mistakes that they've made um, in team building over the years, like uh, we're, we're screwed for half a decade, but the Yankees can just finagle their way out of it. And it's like, that's why when we talk doomsday-ish with them, it's not real. Like it's on a curve. Like you have to just look at oh, them no, from a different lens. There's no apocalypse coming here. This, right. this is not a team that's facing that's facing doom. Not by any stretch. Of the Isn't that crazy though? To just uh, like they just can't. Like the Yankees literally cannot they, face that's, doom. That's the that's the beauty of having more money than God is you can make <laughs> all these mistakes and you can just paper over them with money. Right. The difference between the Yankees of today and the Yankees of you know twenty or so years ago, or you know give or take. Uh, or at least the Yankees of the 2000s that, you know, when, when George Steinbrenner was still alive, was that they had more money to paper over those mistakes because that ownership was more willing to spend the money to paper mm-hmm. over the mistakes. I think the problem that the Yankees have run into is that twofold is that twofold issue of they stopped spending money. Well, I mean, they, they, obviously they kept spending money. I mean, you don't give Garrett Cole $324 million and, you know, have people call that not spending but they stopped spending to the same level and depth at the same time as their farm system stopped producing kind of endless numbers of cheap, of cheap blue chippers at the same time that the young guys who were already on the roster, uh, started taking steps backward in terms of production. And even those guys who have been productive, like judge, he can't stay healthy and he can't stay on the field. So, well, part of that is they don't let him grow out the beard and the beard looks really good on him. He does have a pretty good beard. It, It does make me kind of, hope that he does i mean i i genuinely do not want him on this team because i'd like to root for aaron judge at some point in my life mm. but definitely put him on a non-yankees team so he can just have facial hair he just just let him have facial hair matt mm-hmm. olson can't grow up and aaron judge can so <laughs> but that's the thing like if anyone wants any more matt olson insight as to uh his facial <laughs> <in life. laughs> i feel like i've kind of hammered this a lot at this point but yeah it's mm-hmm. the problem with the yankees isn't so much that they that they are a bad team with a bad roster that can't contend they're a good team that can contend. They just have a roster that doesn't. It, it is the it is the, the sum is less than the parts somehow, mm. and I don't necessarily know how you fix that. To me, the like I guess the easiest solution is you just go get the best shortstop you possibly can, plug him into the biggest hole you have on the team, and then see it, and then kind of just see how everything else figures itself out. Because again, there's just not a whole lot you can do with the majority of this roster. I don't really think the Yankees have any other option beyond sign a shortstop and, and sign some depth pieces around the edges besides, well, this is the team we got and they should be better next year because these guys all have really good high talent levels. Let's hope that with better health and, you know, more consistency and maybe a slightly more flexible roster and maybe Aaron Boone understanding that he kind of needs to win a world series or else he's fired. Maybe that makes the difference, but I guess that's the thing. Like I said, this is not a this is not a, a division that the Yankees just rule by default. They really are going to have to try to win it, and they are in a shakier position to do that than I think people would probably expect. Looking at this roster, again, still a good roster, still should win more than ninety games. Will still be in the playoff chase the entire season, barring a total disaster. But it just does. This does not feel like the best team in the American League, which I think is something that we were pretty confidently saying year in and year out for the last few seasons. You know, anytime we got to the Yankees, it was always this team feels like the AL favorite for the World Series. I don't really think that's the case anymore. I mean, do I have a favorite currently? It's going to depend on what happens with the rest of the offseason, but it really doesn't feel like the Yankees right now at this point. That, granted, that can significantly change if they do sign someone like Correa or, or 
or or uh, Seeger or Story. But for now, I don't even know if I, I don't even think I consider him the favorite to win this division at this point. So yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll have to see. But again, Korea, Korea, and Korea, Seeger or Story, Korea more so than I think either of the other two can change the whole outlook and narrative in a heartbeat if if he's the guy if they sign any one of those guys. So there is definitely room for them to make the big move that puts them kind of back into that World Series favorite position. But I think especially after the last two years, I'm a little hesitant to say that for sure because something just something about this roster just clearly does not click. And I don't know if it's the players there, the personnel, the coaching staff, the manager, what in particular but I, I need to see this team actually pull off a consistent, extended stretch of competency and good results before I really feel like it's time to say, okay, the Yankees are World Series contenders once again. Hmm. We'll end on this. Uh, our old friend Buster Olney of ESPN, he made the mistake of tweeting about the Mets and writing a column about the Mets. Never, never tweeted. Why did... Did he finally stop tweeting about about Zach Scott's DUI? Did he finally drop that particularly long, endless hole digging he was doing? No, I, I don't know. I, I, I genuinely don't know because I don't think fans have forgotten. Mets fans, there's a lot of them. And he, uh, he wrote a column this evening that I'm going to read in a little bit. Um, quote, why rival executives love the social media bursts of Mets owner Steve Cohen and hope he continues. Here are some Mets fans. Still mad about Zach Scott? The Buster Only Dream column. I wouldn't play for him. Baby, I promise you the tweets literally have no impact on anything. Upset. A Buster an- upset. A Buster anti-Met tweet. Um, wow, I was wondering when the weekly Buster Only Mets hating tweet was coming. Okay, but I'm not actually sure, too sure who asked for your opinion. <laughs> Just- yeah, he... He really stepped in it with the Zach Scott stuff. Yeah, it's, it's like Fran Pachilla who called uh, all Tennessee uh, fans idiots on the Tennessee North Carolina broadcast over the weekend. So they're going to be in his mentions forever. Like that's just never going to end. Like there was that was one but, of the silliest things you could have done because now they're just never going to stop. I do. I haven't read the column, but to the person who said this tweet stuff doesn't matter, it, it does matter when your owner won't stop tweeting and tweets really dumb shit yeah that's certainly also we don't know yet i don't think we won't we'll know for sure until the a couple off seasons and then we get the column of like yeah teams have just been like yeah we don't like agents have steered them away for for a while now but that's but that's and like to to wrap it all around like if you're steven matz why would you want to go back to that right you know what it's like you've been there you've seen firsthand how dumb and dysfunctional this franchise is Mm -hmm. why would you want to go back to that when they're giving you nothing but nothing but flashing red warning signs that they're still dumb and dysfunctional. And exactly. That's kind of the thing. Like, I, what is the appeal there? And Steve Cohen tweeting definitely isn't helping that. John Taylor. We can find you on Twitter.com at J.A. Taylor. We can uh, check out you and all the great folks at Fangraphs.com. Go subscribe. Do you have a Thanksgiving special going on or anything for Fangraphs this week? Uh, no Thanksgiving special. No Black Friday Wow, you hate special. the turkeys. We, ex- <laughs> we are uh, officially dark for the next two days. No new content, but... There's plenty of good stuff on the site right now. Jay Jaffe has begun his Jaws profiles of the 2022 Hall of Fame ballot, mm. starting with Todd Helton. Uh, he's also got a bunch of He was at the game recently. I just saw Todd Helton recently. It's Knoxville native, University of Tennessee mm-hmm. star. He's gotten bigger. Manning, he's a big dude. Brand. He's a husky man now. He's, he's, a, he's a large man. He's mm-hmm. always been a large man, but I, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, so you can go read about Helton's Hall of Fame case. Jay also has a lot of profiles up 
for the guys on the latest era uh, Hall of Fame vote, the Golden Days ballot. He's also going to have some stuff on the guys on the Early Days ballot, which is part of that same vote. Uh, it's a lot of old-timey baseball and a lot of Negro Leaguers who have not been up for, who've either previously been up for Hall of Fame consideration, including the legendary Buck O'Neill and some other guys who have been less heralded and less looked over. Uh, other off-season series we got going, Dan Zimborski's Zips 2022 previews and projections are, are begun. He's already got the White Sox and the Diamondbacks on the board with every other team yet to come. Uh, plus, we are covering, obviously, every major signing, trade, move as it happens. We just today had uh, takes on DeSclafani and Wood returning to the Giants and Kendall Graveman going to Chicago. Speaking of stuff we, have, we actually just talked about, and we'll have something on Matt's to St. Louis next week. So yeah, come on by. We are still we are still fan graphs. We are still cool. We are still offering memberships. If you want to help us, but if you want to help us stay in business and well, stay in business, <laughs> if you want to make sure that we are supported going forward, mm-hmm. uh, I would like to make a note too. If you're looking for a small, if you're beginning your holiday shopping this week, as so many people are, mm. fan graphs memberships make a very good gift for the baseball fan in your life, and you can gift them starting at twenty five dollars a year or sixty dollars a year. For the ad-free version, or you can sign up for one for yourself if you want to treat yourself to something nice. So, go on over to Fangraphs, check out our memberships. You can check out our store too. We've got T-shirts, hats, hoodies, mugs, plenty of other cool stuff. Go on and buy some Fangraphs stuff uh, for the baseball fanatic in your life. Mm. Just don't send or some, any or, or someone you hate and, and you know you <laughs> hate war and advanced statistics. Just buy them some Fangraphs stuff to piss them off. Well, we're equal opportunity in that regard. You want to buy. The gifts to your loved ones, great. You want to buy gifts that just make people upset? That we're that's fine. We st- we still get the money at the end of the day. Are stats still upsetting people? Just that stats yes, exist. Yes, they're very upsetting to people. We had we we've we've gotten our Twitter replies are every now and then are just someone yelling about stats, which I it, I've never particularly understood that. It's like going to a bakery and yelling about sugar. It's like what do you want them to do? That's what they do. That's what they need. That's part of the process. Like we're, I also just can't do it now. Us? I was listening to a podcast uh, this week, and one of the hosts was just that, like, look, I don't know anything about this, but, and then continue with a take. And See, that's, that's, that's I just can't. Anytime you can start, a, <laughs> start an opinion with, I don't know anything about this, but. Right. It's always, it's always going to end in a, in a great, informed place. But, yes, there are still many people out there who are not fans of the work we do, but they can go to hell. <laughs> happy thanksgiving they can go to hell john (laughs) (laughs) but if you do like our work go sign up go subscribe tell those other folks also to go to hell you're too riled up for thanksgiving man we need to i'm doing this is a good sales pitch this is how you win people over Mm -hmm. this is the art of the deal okay there you go there you go john taylor you have yourself a good thanksgiving my friend you too man Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.